Welcome to this edition of Talking HR with Lori and Lisa, where as always, our goal is to give you a real look at today's HR world through the sharing of experiences, knowledge, and inspiring people practices. I'm your host, Lisa Fuller. And I'm Lisa's co-host, Lori Rokoff. After some of extreme heat and wildfires here in BC, we are really looking forward to speaking with our guest today, John Bratton who is going to shed some light for us on the topic of green HRM and the role of HR in sustainability. Um, John, uh, you and I go way back to my university days, because I think you recollect he was my- That's H- true. Yeah, he was my uh, HRM professor. And he was the one who introduced me to HR as a profession, and he really inspired me to pursue the profession. And just so, for some background, I'm gonna introduce you, John, to our audience today. Uh, John is an honorary professor in the management school at Queen's University, Belfast in Northern Ireland, and he has held the position of director of the Workplace Learning Research Unit at the University of Calgary here in Canada. He has more than 30 years experience of teaching HRM courses in Canada, but also in Europe and Singapore. And you have a, a new edition of your popular HRM book which is set to come out in November of this year. That's right, Lori, yes. Yep. And the second edition of your book on organizational leadership is due to be published in 2022. That's correct, yes. <laughs> you see, he's, he's making sure that I'm correct, like like I, like I our days of me as being a student. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, your your book on organizational leadership has a chapter on leading pro-environmental change, which is the focus of our episode today. I'm really excited about learning more, John, from you. And maybe just to get us started on our discussion today, can you help define for our listeners what you mean by green HRM? Right. Well, first of all, thank you for the introduction, Laurie. And it's a pleasure to be invited to this uh, podcast. Uh, With regard to your question, um, maybe I ought to just go back a little bit and talk how I got interested in green HRM and environmental sustainability. Um, It goes back, well, actually, before I emigrated to Canada in 1991, uh, I was interested in what they referred to as the green economic model. And it was around economic growth, but having due concern around environmental issues. And then the other major development, why I became interested in it, was um, my son, Andrew, Um, looked at HRM and sustainability as part of his um, MA uh, dissertation. So I got in a more formal way to kind of uh, supervise some of his work at the University of Edinburgh. And since then, I've always included a chapter um, at least Uh, on HRM and green HRM. So with respect to the first question, Lisa, defining green HRM, well, any people-led change suggests that individual level interventions are important. And what green HRM 
is about, certainly in the early studies, is about personal rewards and personal training to make people aware of how they can reduce carbon emissions. And that can be done through changing behavior and to encourage that change in behavior, um, maybe changing rewards, not always financial rewards, but you know, offering uh, employee of the month award or gifts that reward a change in behavior that are, those behaviors are pro-environmental. And, oh, I think it must have been 30 years ago, I remember looking at a collective agreement in England that offered employees the opportunity to switch from using their car to travel to work to riding a bicycle. And of course, in a high density cities that one finds in England, that's easier said than done than in a wide conurbation like city of Calgary. But there were um, attempts to change behavior through those kind of rewards going back 30 years. And um, what's changed is the development of what we refer to now as environmental sustainability. And to me, that's a much broader concept than green HRM. It not only includes a set of planned HR practices, which one could define as green HRM, but it also includes the orientation of leaders, um, the direction of investment within the organization. Uh, importantly, the alignment of technologies which enable the company or the organization to achieve strategic goals, including carbon reducing goals, and importantly, social justice goals, while at the same time in harmony with the natural ecosystems. And part of this environmental sustainability, which is the term we tend to use now rather than just green HRM, is this concept of social justice and linking that to a just transition. And what I mean by that is if a company is going to decarbonize the workplace, then there should be training to make, uh, to allow employees to transition maybe to other positions, or it could also involve uh, provincial and federal funding to help people retrain into green jobs if uh, or as a result of changes in technology. Can, John, can you elaborate a bit more on why environmental sustainability or green HRM uh, in its previous uh, terminology that was used, why is that attracting greater interest for organizations today? 
is it is it the link to sort of the social justice movements or is it the climate change or do you see it a combination of factors that could be making this more attractive? Yeah, well, I think in your opening, Laurie, you partly answered the question and that, I mean, uh, this year, 2021, we've seen extreme weather events which are linked to climate change, high temperatures, forest fires, and certainly you don't need me to remind you of those living in BC, record-breaking floods. That's gone from North America to Europe to Asia, and they've claimed hundreds of lives, as you know. Um, The UN International Panel on Climate Change uh, just last month issued what they referred to as Code Red Report, that human activity, and this is their word, was unequivocally the cause of rapid changes to the climate, including heat waves and floods. So I think that's one driving force. I think the second um, aspect of all this, which I think will generate a lot of interest, and that is the UN Climate Conference, what's referred to as uh, COP26, which is due to be held in Glasgow, Scotland uh, next month. So that's going to generate a lot of interest in the business sector as well as uh, in government. And I think what political leaders across the world have to do is find solutions to what can only be described as life-threatening threats to civilization. And as part of that, organizational leaders have to shift their organizations to be carbon neutral. And we, in North America, the US and Canada, uh, we have to get serious about reducing CO2 gases. And, um, you know, we, we tend to be a little bit complacent because I know if you look at the countries in terms of the share of CO2 emissions, China, produces about 20% of all the emissions in the, around the world. That's a huge amount. Uh, the US, it's 15%. India, 7 And Canada is way down with 2%. Now, if one looks at the ranking, however, per capita of emissions, then uh, Canada and the US are in the top five, and Australia is in the top five as well. Uh, The highest in terms of per capita is Saudi Arabia. So the the high volume of carbon emissions from China, of course, is linked to the fact that for North America and Europe, China produces all the goods that we used to manufacture ourselves. So the pollution's been transferred from one part of the globe to another. So I think, you know, uh, that is the third reason. You've got climate, extreme weather. You've got the political focus um, on the conference in Glasgow and the need to uh, reduce um, carbon emissions and uh, move to a 
carbon neutral workplace. That's the goal that we all have to work towards because I, I do think uh, organizing organizations that fail to evolve uh, risk becoming uh, as fossilized as the hydrocarbons that are in the ground. And certainly they're going to find it hard to adjust when consumers and governments um, start compelling them to change. So it's better to change now in a more planned way than wait for governments or consumers voting with their feet uh, and change in a rapid way. You were talking about the, um, you touched upon leadership in the environmental, around environmental sustainability. What would you say are the characteristics of an effective sustainability leader? Well, looking at leadership, um, leadership I've defined as a process, right? And leaders try to influence individuals and groups as well as their organization um, in terms of, of direction and policy and practices. And uh, looking at a transformational leadership, as you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of focus around uh, transformational leadership and uh, that involves changing behavior and looking at what we would understand as environmental leadership, um, we've got to look at the behaviors of leaders. And to my mind, um, and this is what I've written about in the leadership book, um, if we want pro-environmental change, then we have to reverse the lens from looking at leadership um, in terms of the individual and personal attributes or charisma, what we call a leader-centric orientation. And we've got to move from that to how followers affect leaders. Um, and to look at the processes whereby followers affect leaders and followers themselves act as change agents. And that brings us on to uh, looking at new contemporary theories of leadership. And the one I've been writing about recently, and one uh, I've been discussing with uh, doing some research around uh, in, um, leading indigenous people is the concept of re uh, relational leadership. And relational leadership looks at the significance of human interactions in the workplace, in leadership processes that encourage dialogic conversation um, in a way that that means sharing ideas and opinions and creating common meaning, working out what is possible. Leaders have meetings all the time. You know, in, uh, some are, are formal meetings on a weekly or monthly basis, and they have it 
informal meetings with groups of employees or individuals. But a lot of that communication that takes place is really talking to others. And what relational leadership is about is looking at the interaction between people at work and this notion of collegiality, which is the essence of these interactions and human relationships. And what the, the research shows, uh, Lisa and, and uh, Laurie, is that the, the interactions uh, are important, strong relationships are important in the workplace. And when there are strong relationships, there is more likelihood of synergy, of workplace learning and innovation. And that's the basis on which relational leadership tries to shed some light. I love that concept. And I often think about leadership of really leading from uh, humility and humanity, which ties in to strong relationships. And what I'm hearing you say, John, is a real sort of transformation, not only in the leadership front, but within the culture of the organization as well, because a relationship approach to leadership where it's mutual encourages learning and innovation and collaboration. Can you expand on on that a little bit of how does how does that influence organizational cultures? Yeah, well, as as you know, um, organizational culture is looking at um, patterns of, of values and assumptions and practices in the workplace. And, you know, Going back, it links up with that previous question about sustainable leadership. Studies have found that pro-environmental leaders are more likely to, first of all, possess personal values that go beyond self-interest. They perceive social pressure to support environmental uh, change and sustainable initiatives. And thirdly, they view environmental issues, and I think this is important, as a commercial opportunity rather than a threat. And so what you have with traditional leader-centric models, um, they tend to be grounded in monologic communications. The leader talks and the follower uh, followers listen. So in this contemporary relational leadership model, that's grounded in dialogic ways of speaking, talking with people, not to people. And for that to happen, and focusing on, you know, really interesting and complex question really is, well, with that type of leadership, how does that influence or is influenced by organizational culture? How does organizational culture fit with uh, both pro-environmental behaviors as well as sustainable leadership? 
And um, what we have then to look at is the system of shared values and beliefs, which I would argue are co-produced by organizational members. It's not just something that comes from the top down. Culture is produced by all the membership, although leaders have a key role to play in shaping uh, culture. And all the research shows that managers have to consider uh, organizational culture if they want to be successful in bringing about transformational change. And I would argue that a low carbon or decarbonizing the workplace is a transformational change. And um, what one has to look at is the values of the organization, um, the assumptions one is making, and are they aligned to the goal of reaching a decarbonized workplace, or at least uh, reducing carbon emissions significantly. So really you're talking about a culture that speaks to you know, individual group and organizational dimensions, thinking holistically, culturally, trying to reinforce practices through behaviors, through values, uh, about ways of working within the organization. John, I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking, you know, they want to have that approach. They want to be environmentally sustainable. Um, they like this idea of green HRM. Can you provide some specific examples, very practical things that HR professionals or people practicing HR in the organizations, such as in recruitment and training, performance management, how can they how can they implement these things to encourage a more environmentally sustainable workplace? Well, first of all, I think we have to have conversations within the workplace at all levels in terms of the values and making sure uh, that the values, the culture of the organization mirrors a sustainable set of practices and uh, we've got to make sure that there isn't a gap between the you know optimistic rhetoric of environmental hr and what is happening um, in the office or in the workplace we've got to make sure there isn't that gap and there are a number of practical things that have been identified through lots of research uh, and this goes to, you know, the uh, the practical side of of what we're talking about here. First of all, in terms of recruitment and selection practices, uh, one way to embed ecological values in the workplace is by se selecting people with pro environmental related skills and values. Hiring managers who have a proven track record of envir environmental performance and value environmental protection. Um, so that, you know, there's a lot of tools for 
that kind of selection. Of course, learning and development is a key HR intervention for developing pro-environmental behaviours. In the past, it's tended to be linked to health and safety, but the need for moving, there is a, what can I say, a business case for it in terms of, you know, turning off the lights is energy saving and it saves energy bills, as does reducing waste. Um, One of the examples I used about three years ago, I gave a lecture to about uh, 500 people, uh, students at the University of Sheffield. And it was 12 months after the Scottish government introduced a ban on use of plastic uh, carrier bags in supermarkets. What they did was, um, uh, and Safeway here in Calgary introduced the same scheme just a few months ago. But in that year, the first year, shoppers could pay either the equivalent of about 10 cents for a plastic bag or bring their own reusable bag. In that first year, 12 million plastic bags were eliminated out of landfill sites. And the money that was collected somewhere around about the equivalent uh, of about $8 million was given to charities. Um, So there is a really strong business case for reducing plastics and being more environmental aware of what's going on and changing practices. So learning and development is a key one. Reward system I've already mentioned is a third one. And rewards is always a good indication of how serious a company is to environmental sustainability. Um, Introducing either monetary or non-monetary rewards to recognize changes in behavior, behavior that is pro-environmental. And um, I think to link up with what I've been saying about leadership is the importance of employee voice. This is a transformational task, is decarbonizing the workplace. It cannot be done simply by top-down or charismatic leaders. There has, has to be input from across the organization an employee voice whether it's informally or formally and i've done research looking at union voice and how unions can create a sustainable workplace and in non-union organizations best practices of focus on dialogic communication which highlights the value of employee voice in shaping both individual and organizational behavior. So I think looking at those five key HR interventions would be a really good starting point. Thanks, John. That was uh, 
it's a lot to think about today. And it's very timely. I, I know it's a, it's a topic that a lot of our listeners are probably very interested in. And we really appreciate you being with us today and telling us your um, expertise in this area. I agree. It was It's very interesting. And we do know that the labor market is incredibly, incredibly hard to fill positions. And I think employers that have really strong core values around environmental sustainability, social justice, those kind of platforms, they've recognized that, you know, it it is uh, it really helps to attract and retain talent and engage talent for employees to thrive in that type of environment. So thank you for sharing your expertise, your research. Um, it's been fascinating to learn learn more. We'd like to also thank Andrew, our team member with Master of Technical Support, who sits in the background running our podcast, and Elizabeth Leston, who manages our social media and communications. Thank you both. Right. Thank you. Uh, It's been a pleasure, Lisa and Laurie. And I'd I'd just conclude that like COVID pandemic, I think decarbonizing the workplace is a marathon. And I think HR has a vital role to play in shaping the post-COVID workplace. So thank you for this opportunity to share my research and to talk about what for me is now a passion. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. Bye, everyone. Talk to you next time.